So if you haven't already done so, please turn to Jude, the book of Jude, and looking at verses 24 and 25. Now, during World War II, the German Blitzkrieg overtook mainland Europe very quickly. And that left England very isolated. It could no longer get supplies that it needed for the war and for its own nation from mainland Europe. They relied on North America, ships going back and forth over the North Atlantic and over the South Atlantic, whatever ways they could get across the Atlantic. And the Prime Minister of England uh, during World War II, Winston Churchill, once confessed after the war that the only thing that really terrified him was the thought of the German U-boats. The German U-boats wreaked havoc on the shipping No German U-boats here. (laughs) So, we'll go to plan B. So the German U-boats could theoretically cut off England and starve it. Right? That's one way to defeat a nation is to to completely cut off its ability to to fight in a battle. Then it terrified him. Uh, To interrupt those supplies, the Germans built U-boats. They were ahead of everybody else in the technology of their U-boats. They weren't as sophisticated as today's submarines. They could only stay submerged for a short period of time before the, you know, the, the, the operators inside of it would die of asphyxiation. They didn't have enough oxygen to, to go, but they could stay under for several hours and later they could stay under for like up to three days uh, with some of the later models. These submarines could carry anywhere from 11 to 16 torpedoes and uh, to over two dozen mines. They could also mine a whole field. So they were very deadly. Uh, Merchant ships had very little protection. They had some small guns, but unless the U-boat was surfaced, there was nothing they could really do. Now to protect the convoys of these merchant ships going back and forth across the North Atlantic, the the Allies used a lot of planes, and the planes could easily spot the U-boats, which were not that deep, and then could bomb them and and warn the planes, uh, warn the ships as well. But the problem was is that the airplanes of those days did not have the range to fly air cover all across the North Atlantic. There was a portion of the North Atlantic that was unprotected, and it was called the Black Pit. And in order to help these ships make it through, all the way through the Black Pit and safely to England and safely back, the the Allies built what, what are known as destroyer escorts. They were designed to hunt and kill submarines and to protect the fleet. And the Allies built over 500 of these. And these ships were well equipped with modern technology of radar to be able to pick up where these where these um, U-boats were at and to be able to help protect the fleet. Um, these um, destroyer escorts were known as the Shepherds of the Atlantic. Because they really did shepherd their the, these ships. I mean, these convoys were up to 40 ships. And these convoys couldn't just sail sh- straight. The, the, these ships, the, the shepherds, actually had to direct the traffic and keep the ships moving, changing direction every so often, or they'd be easy targets for the U-boats. You can imagine directing 40 ships to try to all turn in unison so they don't hit one another. Right? Quite a task um, 
and yet even even with their great protection that they offered, um, these shepherds could not fully protect ships. Ships were lost, men's lives were lost. Over over eighty thousand um, sailors and airmen were lost in the battle for the Atlantic over the six years that that battle lasted. And the U-boats were particularly dangerous when they worked in packs. That's where the term wolf pack comes from, at least in that that era. One sub would identify where the ships were at and then radio to the other subs where the ships were at. And they would work in packs of anywhere from three to about 30, all trying to pick apart the convoy headed there. But the destroyer escorts were highly successful. And if you were a merchant marine, you definitely wanted to be sailing with one of those. All right, guarding you and protecting you, and really more than one, as they worked often worked together with other uh, military ships. But those were the ones that really just helped protect the fleet. And in a sense, the Book of Jude can be described as, in in, in rough terms, like the battle for the Atlantic. You you might um, um, we we have false teachers that have slipped into the church, who have slipped in unaware. They seem to be like Christians. They dress and talk like Christians, but they have a different agenda and they have different character. Jude has has gone into that. He's told us about the reality of these. He's called us that to to really be on guard, to be contending for the faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints. But these false teachers are around. Now Jude has assured us that their judgment is sure. That God has, uh, is not surprised by their appearance, but he calls us to be on guard because they are around. And in the latter part of, of Jude talked about the, the danger of really trying to, to mercifully help those who have been caught in the snares of these false teachers. It's dangerous work, snatching them as it were from the fire, right? Handling those that are contaminated by and soiled by sin, sin which can easily entangle our own lives. And it'd be very easy to walk away from the book of Jude, maybe a little bit with a little bit of a heavy heart, a little bit of discouragement, a little bit of maybe despair, maybe a little uncertainty. Are you going to fall victim to to a false teacher? Will you be a casualty that sinks into the black pit? Well, Jude writes a, a wonderful ending to this letter to assure you that's not the case. Right? The the cruiser, the the destroyer. Uh, uh, shepherds of World War II were only moderately effective. But you have a good shepherd who is perfect, who is constantly guarding and protecting you. And Jude writes about this good shepherd, this perfect shepherd, who will see you all the way safely to heaven. Right? Doesn't promise you smooth sailing, but he promises to be with you and to see you through. And that, that's really what, what we're going to look at today. And let's just read that together. And and since this is the last lesson on Jude, I want to take Jude from the beginning and just read it through all the way to the end. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you 
about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, exhorting you that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, though you know all things, that Jesus, having once saved a people and the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels, who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, having indulged in the same way as these in gross sexual immorality, and having undergone, having gone after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way, these men, also by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and blaspheming glorious ones. But Michael the archangel, when, when he, disputing with the devil, was arguing about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men, blaspheming the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these they are destroyed. Woe to them! For they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have poured themselves into the air of Balaam, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast, when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, deadly, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. But Enoch and the seventh generation from Adam also prophesied about these men, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds in which they have done in an ungodly way and all, and all of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lust, and their mouth speaks arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of their own benefit. But you, beloved, must remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, that they were saying to you, In the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, not having the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And on some who are doubting, have mercy. And for others, save, snatching them out of the fire. And on others, have mercy with fear, hating even the tunic polluted by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, might, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. What a glorious text this is. It is truly one of the greatest doxologies in all of Scripture. Not that you want to pit one Scripture against another. That's not the point. But this is truly one of the greatest doxologies in all of Scripture. And Pastor MacArthur in his sermon on this makes the case that this is indeed the 
gives us the greatest of all the doctrines of God. It's the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Not that we persevere in our own strength, but the Lord as our shepherd guides us all the way to the end. How, how magnificent would salvation be if it were something that we could lose? I can promise you, if you could lose your salvation, you would. And so would I. God is the one who holds us fast. He's the one that will see us through. And, and Jude provides us with, with two what I call praise-inducing realities of God so that you'll confidently live in Him and, and that you'll most certainly know that He will see you to the end, that He will see you into the heavenly kingdom, into eternity. He will preserve you now and into eternity. We're going to look at this kind of two Two broad categories, God's abilities and God's attributes. And as we focus on God's abilities and as God's attributes, if you are alive in Christ, you will, won't be able to restrain the praise as we look at these things. It would be wrong to do so. Now, it's interesting. Jude's letter, he admits writing a, a letter he didn't really want to write. He really wanted to write a different letter. He wanted to write a positive, uplifting letter talking about the glories of Jesus Christ. Well, guess what? He get, finally gets to do it in the final two verses. He talks about this common salvation, right? But it's been a serious letter. It's, it's a letter calling us to fight for truth, to guard our lives, to beware of these, of these false teachers, not the ones we can easily spot, right? But the ones that sneak into the church, that act like pastors, that act like shepherds, but really they are wolves in sheep's clothing. It's such a serious letter and all the talk about uh, being on guard and the talk about these false teachers and their condemnation and how the Lord is going to judge them. All that can weigh on your heart pretty heavily. But but Jude ends on a marvelous, marvelous note. And and to, to help us transition, he just merely says this. He says, now. Use that word, now. Okay. Having said all that I said before that, now. Now I finally get to the part that I wanted to write in the beginning. Now. That's his transition. He's moving um, away from talking about the false teachers. And remember, too, as we read through that, hopefully picked up on on the things that you're called to do as a believer. You're called to contend for the faith. You're, you're called to uh, remember the teaching of the apostles, to keep yourselves in the love of God, to build yourselves up in your most holy faith, to pray in the Holy Spirit. You're, you're to wait on the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. You're to have mercy on those who are doubting, who have been influenced by the false teachers and don't really know the truth. You're to be rescuing those who have, who have been swayed by the teaching of the false teachers. Right? To go and rescue them. You are to go and even rescue those who are caught in just the slime of, of sinful living. Right? To, to deal with that yuckiness. Right? If you've ever dealt with someone help, trying to help them rescue them out of something, they've got a mess they've gotten them into, you know what that's like. It's not fun. Right? You'd rather not deal with that. Right? Those are our responsibilities. But now Jude doesn't want us to, to end on the note of thinking that it's all about what we do. He really start. He really completes what he started in the beginning because he says in the beginning of his letter that we are kept for Jesus Christ. Right? We're kept. So Jude wants you to know that God has the ability to keep you all the way 
the end, to escort you into eternity. And so I want you to first think about and, and really to praise God for his ability to preserve you. Jude focuses on God's abilities here in this first, first part. And in verse 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Now, Jude, to really put an emphasis on the characters, uh, on the ability of God here, he doesn't start out and say God is, is able. He just says to him who is able. Right? It's focusing on his abilities. He's going to clearly identify who he's talking about in verse 25. We know that it's, it's God. Right? But, but Jude wants to really put the emphasis on God's characteristics. You see, modern evangelicalism just says, praise God, praise God, praise God, and they never tell us why. Jude is telling us why. Why is God worthy to be praised? Right? And it's because of his ability. Right? This whole section is called a doxology. It's from the Greek word doxa, which, which really talking about glory. We're talking about the glories of God. Right? Jude begins this doxology with God's abilities, an emphasis on God's abilities. He is able. He is able. And he wants you to contemplate. Jude wants you to contemplate the wondrous abilities of God, especially his ability to see you to the end. And we're going to, we're going to see how that, that works out. There's, there's two specific abilities that Jude focuses on. And we see that in verse 24. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. So the ability number one that Jude focuses on is to keep you from stumbling. To keep you from stumbling. Now, we have seen the word keep before. In verse one says this, Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Verse 6, And the angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And then verse 21, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Now the word keep in those verses is actually a translation of a of a different word than the keep in verse 24. So I I don't usually reference too much uh, Greek words but the 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 word um used in verse 1, 6 and 21 is the word tereo. To but it's translated to keep and I'm going to distinguish that between this and another word in in just a moment. Um so the keep in these verses has the idea of keeping a watchful care. It's like watchful care um, of something that is in your present possession. You have something valuable or you have something assigned to you and you're to have watchful care of that. Right? So that's, that's the idea with that. Now, verse 24, the word keep is from a Greek word, phuloso. It, it carries the idea of safe custody when some when there is like attacks from the outside. So these terms are related. There's a keeping, that is just keeping a watchful watchful eye on something, but then there's the idea of protection. Like a, uh, and that's the idea in verse 24 of protecting that. And these words are used together in an, in an interesting way that helps us distinguish them in John 
chapter 17. So if you'd like to turn there, go to John 17, verses 11 to 12. You can turn there or just listen, and I will point these things out. John 17 is Christ's high priestly prayer, which he prayed for his disciples and, by extension, for you and for me. I'm going to look at verses 11 and 12. He says there, praying to the Father, he says, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. I have come to you, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. So that's tereo. That's the idea of watchful care. right? Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them. That's also tereo. That's watchful care. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I have guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. That word guarded is fulaso. It has, it's the idea of keeping in a protective sense, in the guarding sense. So it's translated guarded in that particular context. So when we go back to thinking about Jude, we, we can understand that Jude is saying not just that, that God has a watchful care of you, but that he is actively protecting you as his possession. That there are attacks, there's a dangerous territory around us, but, but that God will protect us. So he's, he, God will, will exercise watchful care, but also he will guard us. He will exercise a, a protective care, a keeping in the sense of protection. So the Apostle John employs the idea of, of keeping in a in a guarding sense in first John five twenty one. Just listen to this. First John five twenty one. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. That's literally keep yourselves from idols. But it ha- it's the word fulaso, which has the idea of protect. You need to protect yourself from idols, because our hearts are idol factories. Okay? Not just the physical idols that we find in in like countries of the East, um, and even some cases in the United States, physical idols. But we're talking about idols of the heart. Guard yourself from those idols. So when you're going back to Jude 24, we need to understand the word keep in verse 24 is talking about guarding or protecting. And what is able, what is God able to, to guard or protect? In verse 24, he's able to guard or protect you from stumbling. From stumbling. And, and don't jump over the pronoun there. You. He is able to protect the faithful Christians, those who are more mature, those who are more stable, those... No, 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 no. You. Who's you talking to? The church. He's talking to believers. Yeah. So no matter your stage of spiritual growth or where you are, whether you've been just recently saved or you've been saved a long time, the Lord is able to say, keep you, to guard you. Right? And to guard you from stumbling. Now, what does the word stumble mean? Well, in many places, stumbling refers to the idea of sinning, or is used to talk about sinning. For example, Matthew 5, verses 29 and 30, Jesus says, But if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it down and throw it from you. It is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell, which is similar to what we read in Matthew 18. Jesus isn't talking about 
go literally mutilate yourself. What he's saying is take drastic measures to deal with sin. But the word stumble is used to refer to sin. 1 Corinthians 8.13 uses the word the same way. He says, therefore, Paul says, there if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, ever, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. In other words, Paul's going to give up his right to eat meat that it was sacrificed to idols. There was no other meat at the time. So he says, I'll give up my right to eat meat so so my brother will not sin. That's how much he loved his brother. And James 3.2 says this, For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the entire body as well. So the word stumble in those cases means sin. So let's go back to Jude. Does Jude mean to tell us that God is able to keep us from sinning? in the same way that the word stumble is used in these other passages. I want to say very clearly, no. Very clearly, no. Because if God's intent was for you and for me to live perfectly without sin in this life, that's exactly what would happen. God's ability to do something means that God is going to do it. He doesn't have ability to do something that he doesn't actually do. This ability isn't just potential or theoretical. It is actual, as we'll see. And plus, you know that you're not perfect. So there are some Christians who put forth the doctrine of what's called perfectionism, the idea that Christians can be perfect here on earth. It's just, it's heresy, it's nonsense, it's discouraging. That's not at all what the scriptures teach. Um, we know that because of passages like First uh, John one eight. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So that's speaking about believers. So there is a battle that's going on, and I know the uh, Romans seven is contested uh, as to what who Paul is talking about. But I take Romans seven to talking that Paul is talking about himself, and that he is a mature believer. And and just listen to him. He says, I find the principle that is in me, I find then the principle that is in me, evil, is present. In me, who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in my members, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a captive to the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? Thanks be to God that through Jesus Christ our Lord, So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. So there's this, even within Paul as a mature believer, there was this battle with sin. And there are other passages we could go to, to to shoot down the false doctrine of perfectionism. So Jude is not saying that that God is able to keep you from sinning. That's not God's intent. If God intended to do that, he certainly could do that. But that's not how he's using the word stumble. Um, The scriptures sometimes use the idea of stumbling to refer to apostasy and to eternal damnation. And that is the sense that I believe Jude is using that. And that's what the context would also support. For example, in Psalm 9, verse 3, uh, again, we're dealing with switch in, in original languages to Hebrew, but it's a similar idea. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you. Okay? Hebrew uses parallelism to help us understand the terms and to emphasize it. Just when my enemies turn back, 
they stumble and perish. So the stumbling is equivalent with perish. Right? So that's how that you, the idea of stumbling is being used there. And Psalm 66, verses 8 and 9 say this, Bless our God, O peoples, and make the sound of his praise heard, who establishes us among the living and does not allow our feet to stumble. Right? So the psalmist is saying, God does not allow our feet to stumble. Did the Israelites sin? And sin repeatedly? I don't even have to turn to the scriptures to prove that, because you know that. Right? We are just like them. We're made of the of the same mold. We're not better than they are. Right? We are very much like them. So the stumbling there is talking about apostatizing. The Lord would not allow them as a as a nation totally to, to fall into apostasy. He would always have his faithful remnant. In Psalm 121, verses 1 to 3, the psalmist says, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from Yahweh, who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to stumble. He who keeps you will not slumber. He's not sleeping. He's on guard. He's protecting you. He won't allow his people to fall off the cliff, to sink into the black pit of the North Atlantic. And then in Proverbs 24, verse 16, it says, For a righteous man falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked will stumble in calamity. Those who are wicked, those who reject Christ, will stumble in calamity. They're going to head toward eternity and eternal punishment. So we, when going back to Jude, when, when Jude is talking about stumbling, he is talking about uh, apostatizing. Turning away from the Lord, not, not failing to finish is what he's, he's talking about. And I believe that there is a New Testament passage that also speaks about this to kind of confirm that. In First Peter, um, uh, actually, back up, there's a, the idea that God is protecting us um, is proven by, by First Peter. And, and there, there's a there's a passage that in the New Testament there's at least one that speaks about the Lord guarding us or or using the word stumble in the same sense of that and uh, I will, for the sake of time I will not go to that at the moment but what I want to do is point out God's great ability to protect us from apostatizing from failing to finish um, Hakum and, and Terry have been preaching through First Peter. And, and just a moment, reflect on some of what they that has been said there. First Peter 1, 3-5 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, having been kept in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So it's it's very similar to Jude in talking about God's protection of the believer for the end times, for that time, like the time when, when the Lord would complete what he has begun in our lives in eternity. So God is able to keep you from stumbling, keep you from apostatizing, keep you from totally failing. Again, if you could lose your salvation, you would, but you're not going to if you're truly saved because God is the one who is able to keep you from walking away from him. The second ability that, that, that Jude um, identifies here is God's ability to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. God is able to make you stand. 
The word here, stand, is a, is a reference to judgment. If you think about what the psalmist says in Psalm 130, verse 3, it says this. He says, if you, it's talking to the Lord, if you should keep iniquities, that is keep, that is, that is pay careful attention to, keep iniquities, O Yahweh, O Lord, who could stand? Who could survive God's judgment? He knows everything. The answer is no one. No one can stand. We're all guilty sinners. So what, what is Jude saying? He's, he's saying that God is able to make you stand. When that time comes, either at the point of your death, right, or the Lord's return, calling us to be with the Lord, when you see the Lord, right, He is going to make you stand. You know, in all the occurrences uh, that we have in the Bible, where someone meets up with with the the angel of the Lord, or a um, an, the angel of the Lord in the New Testament or the Old Testament, they have a, a theme that they have the response, and that is falling down like a dead man. Because they're sin, sinners, they're, they're sinful men. Even though they worship God, they're sinful men and women in the presence of the Holy God. So it is absolutely spectacular news that he is able to make you stand in his presence. Right? Just think about that. You're going to, as a believer in Christ, going to stand before God. right? And you may bow down and worship, but you're not going to bow down and cower because of sin. I mean that that's just spectacular news. And it even it even gets gets better when he talks about where we're going to be standing. The Lord is able to make you stand in his presence. In his presence. Look at that. Look at what what Jude is saying. In the presence of his glory. Right? The the Shekinah glory. The glory that no man has ever seen. No other than Christ, the fully God, fully man. But none of us, no believers, Abraham, Moses, they only saw a partial unveiling of the glory. Mount Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus was there and he was shining in radiance. Uh, Three disciples, Peter, James, John, they only saw a partial radiance. That was just veiled. That was just pulling back a slight crack in the veil of God's glory. You're talking about, what Judah's talking about is being in the presence of God with no veil between you. There won't be a veil separating God and you. You're going to be there. And you're going to stand in the presence of his glory but Jude doesn't add, doesn't end there. What does he say? You'll stand there what? Blameless. I mean, I'm not making this stuff up. You look at it at the Bible. Okay? He's going to make you stand there blameless. Yeah, you that, that have sinned so much. And me. You. All that Christ has done. Washing away your sins. He's going to make you, at that moment, complete. All your struggle with sin is done. It's gone. And you can stand before God blameless. Not because you lived a blameless life. None of us can do that. I can't. You can't. 
what Christ did for us. And it's at this point that his blameless life actually blossoms into full fruit into your life. Where now you have a blameless life. Not just in a legal standing, which we have now, but in a practical standing. And that leads you to say what he says next. Blameless what? With great joy. How can you how can you contain this? I mean, this is God's great promise. The, the realization of all that God has done for you at that moment will fill you with great joy. The God who saves is the God who completes what he has begun in your life. You'll be shouting and leaping for joy. You, you won't be able to contain yourself. God is a God of joy. You may not think of him that way. You should. Right? But you need to recalibrate yourself if you don't. He's a God of joy. When God saves, he brings salvation. Yes, he's a serious God. He's a holy God. And we are to worship him seriously and in righteousness. But he's a God that brings joy. The men were studying uh, Nehemiah 12 recently. And, and when the walls were rebuilt of Jerusalem, they dedicated the walls. They appointed choirs, two different choirs, one to go up the walls one way, one to go up the walls the other way. And the people of Israel gathered together, and with these choirs, they gave God praise. They were so filled with joy. Let me read that to you. And the singers made their voices heard with Jezariah, their overseer. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices and were glad because God had given them great gladness. Even the women and children were glad, so that the gladness of Jerusalem was heard from afar. Shouting of joy was heard well beyond the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And that's that's an imperfect joy, but God gave them joy. Think about the perfect joy we're going to experience in heaven. That The joy we experience in heaven will, will be nothing compared to what Jerusalem experienced on that day. Their joy was so loud it resonated right, well beyond the city of Jerusalem. That's going to happen again with the Lord's people. There's a, there's a good illustration of the type of joy that, that this invokes in us. In, in Acts 3, you have this man who is lame from birth. And he's sitting there begging in front of the temple. He can't go into the temple because he's what? He has a defect. He's not permitted to go into the temple and worship God. So he's begging for survival. And Peter says to him, silver and gold I, I don't have. But what I do have, I give you. And, and let me just read this to you so you'll know I'm not embellishing this. So Peter, seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. And leaping up, he stood upright and began to walk. He would expect that. And entered the temple with him. He entered the temple to worship God. First time in his life. Walking and leaping and praising God. I thought about leaping. But that's 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 what we're talking about. It's okay if you say amen at this point. <laughs> you know, just understand what God is doing. You will not be able to restrain the joy. Okay? The joy of the Lord will fill you, and you will do just as this lame man did. You will leap with joy. That's what God is going to be doing. And the great thing is, this that Jude says is, we're going to be there in his presence with great joy. That's not just us. 
That's not just us. You know, the scriptures tell us, Hebrews 12, 2 says that for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. Right? What do you think joy was before him? And in part, it wasn't all, but in part, it was to see you saved. And here's the completion of that project. So Christ is going to be filled with joy to see God's work completed in you. And, and the Father will be rejoicing. You might not have thought about that, but the Father rejoices in his own work. In Zephaniah 3.17 says, Yahweh your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will be joyful over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with joyful singing. God singing over you? This is where the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel gets it wrong. They think that God's doing that now. Oh no. No. You're, you're not that good. And I'm not that good. Right? We're not little gods. This is future glory. This is what God's going to do. And he's going to rejoice because of what he does and work is completing you. The angels will be rejoicing. We know that the angels rejoice in heaven when one sinner repents. What do you think is going to happen to the angels when the work of salvation is complete in that one sinner? Or a bunch of sinners? They're going to be singing. They're going to be rejoicing. And the saints around God's throne will be rejoicing. You won't be there alone. We get a glimpse of this in Revelation chapter 4. Beginning in verse 9. And when the living creatures... Give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders will fall down before him and sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. So you'll be praised by those around the throne. Why does Jude tell us all this? Again, to encourage you to remain steadfast, that you'll be confident in the Lord, and to invoke praise. To invoke praise, that you would praise your Savior and God. Now, all the glorious things we've been talking about are for those who are in Christ. And it, I'm sure that there are people within the sound of my voice who are not in Christ today. This is not for you. At least not yet. We know that if you were to die today and you come before the Lord God Almighty, you will not be able to stand and you will not be filled with joy. You will be faced with an eternity of punishment for your sins of rejecting Christ. But know that doesn't have to happen. Today can be the day of your salvation if you will turn and trust in Christ. Repent of your sins. Believe in Christ. Seek to live for Him that He is your Lord. If you will do this, you will be saved and all the blessings that we've talked about are yours as well. Don't turn a blind eye or a cold heart to the grand mercy of God who offers you so much if you will just simply believe, if you will bow your knee before him and obey him. Well, believers, Jude focuses attention on the, on the abilities of God, but in the time remaining, let's look at the attributes of God. And these, I believe that these attributes aren't just random attributes that, that Jude brings together. 
these attributes actually guarantee that God is able to do what he said he's going to do. That is, complete you. So I believe that even if we can't understand all the hows, these abilities actually get you, help make sure that God is able to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Now, being in verse 25 really identifies who we're talking about. To the only God, our Savior. Right, our world wants to say, you know, your truth, your way, um, whatever, whatever works for you is fine. That's what, but what they'll say, except if it crosses their will. But that's a little caveat they don't want you to know about. But the the point is, there's only one true God, and Jude here is 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 pointing that out in contrast to the to the polytheism of the world at the time and the polytheism of our world today. We've got. Many people who say they have a way to God, but know that this is the one true God. This is the creator God. This is not the God of, the, of Muhammad. This is not Buddha. This is not the, the multiple thousands, ten thousands of gods of the Hindus. All those are just demons. Those are not true gods at all. This is the one true God. There is no other. So to the only God, our Savior. When you think about God, yes, He's holy. Yes, He's a righteous judge. But you'd want you to associate the idea of Savior. Savior. Shepherd is a, is a good, good uh, synonym with that. The only God is the only one who could save you from a Christless eternity and from eternal punishment. And how does he do that? But he says, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This describes how God is able to say, this describes how God is able to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. It's through Jesus Christ. It's his sacrifice. Who is, Jesus is our Lord. He is the perfect God-man. And the, the phrase, our Lord, is really the appropriate response of all those who have come to faith in Christ. And if you have a Lord, that makes you a slave. A willing slave, but a slave nonetheless. So you seek to obey Him. Our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now just take a moment to bask in that God alone deserves all praise and glory and honor. People today rob God of ascribed glory. They can't really take away any glory from him. But they they rob him in the fact that they don't give him uh, praise and honor. The health, wealth, and prosperity gospel does this. They, they, they will attribute far too much to themselves in whatever God is doing. You know, it's, it's God and them. And I recognize scripture does call us to play a part. Jude says that. There's responsibilities that you have. But in the end of the day, salvation is all God's work beginning to end. He gets all the credit. And so as you, as you think about the only true God and what he, what he has done, what he is doing, what he will do, give him your praise completely. Now, Jude says to that God, in verse 
25, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, might, and authority before all time, now and forever. Notice the word the the word be is italicized. That's it's added there to try to smooth out the English, to try to make it a smooth sentence. So what what Jude is saying is to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, might, and authority. So he is asking us to to basically ascribe these things to God to praise him for these things. There's a little bit of danger in, in that, or is a, there's a way to misunderstand that. The word be really isn't there. What, what Jude is saying is, doesn't really make a, a good sentence, but that happens sometimes in life. Sometimes you get so excited about something, you jump from one thing to another and you forget a word. In this case, this is divine forgetting, right? If there can be such a thing. This is intentional, no, I shouldn't say forgetting with the Holy Spirit, but an intentional omission. Jude is so filled with joy. He goes, to that only God, glory. He literally says, glory, majesty, might, and authority. You know, ultimately, you can't give God any of these. He already has them. And he has them in a full measure. God hasn't changed one day. He's had these characteristics from eternity. He has them today, and he will have them. We see that in the time time phrase. Look at it at the end. Before all time, now and forever. Amen. So Jude isn't calling us to like give God these things. We're to acknowledge them. And they're praise-inducing as we think about these things. Let's just go through these quickly. Uh, first, glory. The, the first attribute of God that Jude lists is glory. It's the word Greek word doxa from which we get the word doxology, as I mentioned before. Glory refers to the very nature of God. Where God is, his glory is manifested long before creation. Right? And we think about glory as something visual. It's far richer than that because the light rays that you and I see, that's part of creation. That didn't exist until God created it, but God has always possessed glory. Very difficult for us to understand as creatures. The, the glory of God is what protected the Israelites in the pillar of fire, the pillar of smoke, and it protected them from the Egyptians and allowed the Israelites to, to get to the Red Sea, to get, be able to cross the sea safely. Okay? His glory ensures that he will complete what he has begun. He will see you all the way to the end. That that's in part why Jude points to the to glory. The the full, unmitigated brilliance of God's glory shows him to be God. There's none other that shares his glory. None other like him. Um, the fact that, that God is God means no one is like him and no one shares his glory. Nothing or no one can can oppose him, successfully oppose him. So God's, in a sense, God's glory captures all of his attributes and wraps them up in a magnificent bundle. So there's glory. And you're going to be in the presence of his glory with great joy. Now think about majesty. Uh, Jude lists majesty as the second attribute of God. That The kings and queens of England call themselves his majesty or her majesty. Uh, that's a travesty that they would do that. They really should not be using the term majesty for themselves at all. It only belongs to God. The term is used 
three times in Scripture, so once in Jude and two other places, both in Hebrews, and each time they're used of God. Let me just read that to you. In uh, Hebrews 1, reading verses 1 to 3. God, having spoken long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days spoke to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power, who, having accomplished cleansing for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So the majesty is a is a way to describe God. Hebrews 8.1 uses it in a similar sense. Now, the main point of what is being said is this. We have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the holy places in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. So God is known as the majesty, the majestic one. And and God's majesty refers to his greatness and highness. There is nobody greater. There is nobody higher. And the the true meaning of majesty is actually difficult to describe. Uh, Dib and Hebert explains that it, and I just quote him here, he said, it depicts the admirable, admirable highness and greatness of God, which are beyond adequate human apprehension. We just can't even put it in words. But you're going to be there. And you're going to see him, the majestic one, in all his majestic greatness and highness. Then to that, Jude adds the word might. The word might refers to God's strength and power to do as he pleases. There is no one who can oppose him. The Lord rules the heavens and does whatever he pleases. And he only pleases what is good. God's might is is why he can be called God Almighty. Uh, some Bibles translate some Bibles translate this dominion, but really the idea is might. Here the here the idea is strength. Um, since might belongs to our God, there's no doubt He is able to to make you stand in His presence. He has the 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 might and the strength to do that. There's a wonderful. Um, passage in in John where Jesus emphasizes this. I'll just read it to you. John 10, verses 27 to 29. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, ever. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's Jesus' word. No one is going to snatch them out of my hand. If you're a sheep in Christ's hand, no one is going to snatch them out of his hand. But then he adds this. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. That speaks of the Father's might. He is incredibly mighty. That's what we call the Almighty One. So Jude focuses on the glory of God, the majesty of God, the might of God. And to that he adds authority. And here what he means by authority is that God has the legal right to to carry out everything that he wants to carry out. He's the creator. Uh, some translations, Bible translations, use the word power here. And that's okay as long as we understand this to be like legal power. Like we use the term power of attorney to talk about legal authority. This is legal power it's, or authority. So no one can say to God, hey, what are you doing? 
you know, it's it's like a, a big muscle man who is able to beat up a lot of people, but he has no authority to do that. God is able, he has the might, but he also has the legal authority to protect you and to see you completely perfected in his presence, in his glory, with, with great joy. So God possesses glory, majesty, might, and authority. These attributes absolutely guarantee that God is able to make you stand in his presence, uh, the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. What can you say to these things? Well, look what Jude says at the end. What does he say? Amen! Amen! You know what amen means? It's not just a filler. It's not just we use something we use the tag of, of, of prayers. It actually has a meaning. It means let it be. It is an affirmation of faith to say yes. So Judah is saying, yes, let it be. Right? Glory be to our God. And so while we can't give God glory, you can't give him majesty, can't give him strength or authority, we acknowledge that he possesses these things. We praise him for it. And Judah at once says, yes, let it be. I believe these things. And he reflects upon even he himself being perfected in God's glory one day. Yes, let it be. Let it be. So believers, just think about this. This this verse, this one you should memorize. You should post it around your house. You should post it in your car. Put it on your phone. Do whatever you got to do. Get this into your head. Get this into your spiritual DNA. Because it doesn't just apply when false teachers are around. What about the day when you're just really discouraged with your own sin? Preach this verse to yourself. Preach it to yourself. It's easy to get down and discouraged in this life. But we need to keep our focus centered correctly. And that is on Christ and on God and what he's doing. Remember what he has promised you. Remember that that this is his world, and it's under his control. Although it looks chaotic, and it looks like it's out of control, it's really not. He is able, and he will do it. And some of you might be saying, well, he might be able, but I'm not sure he wants to. That's a different sermon, but I'll assure you, he does want to save all who call upon his name, without a doubt. He's not going to leave you halfway halfway there. No one who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be disappointed. That's a promise of his word. I just think about the the destroyer escorts you're talking about in the Battle of the Atlantic. Right? God is that perfect right? destroyer escort guiding you through life and will assure you that you're not going to sink into the black pit. You just won't. And not because of your own ability, but because of His. His glory, right? His majesty, His might. And his authority guarantee it. So praise him, glorify him, and honor him today. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, what can we say to these things? All words are inadequate. We just affirm these things. We praise you for these things. We say the amen with you. Oh, Lord God, do these things. May these things come about. And we say that knowing not with any kind of doubt, 
but just, in the, just we just affirm these things. May these things be. Amen and amen. It's the name of Jesus Christ. We ask these things. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.